This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Just before I came in today, you are, I'm sure you're aware of who Dylan Roof is. Not that you want to be aware of him. This would have been a vastly better world if we had never heard the name Dylan Roof, quite honestly, because Dylan Roof was that guy in Charleston, South Carolina, who shot up a black church. You know the story? Remember the story? Nine people were killed. And, you know, really the most, well, one of the most unnecessary tragedies. Can you call it a tragedy? I guess you call it a tragedy. I always think of a tragedy. I mean, it's clearly, it's a horrific thing. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not like that. I always think of a tragedy more as an unforeseen, unpreventable occurrence. This was absolutely preventable. Dylan Roof decided it was not going to be preventable. But we'll call it a tragedy just for whether that's the right word or not. Dylan Roof went in and shot up a black church. Nine people were killed. And today, just before I came into the studio, a jury in Charleston, South Carolina, it only took them three hours to talk about this, which quite frankly is not that long a time when you consider that they were deliberating over whether or not to send a man to his death. Voted unanimously to give him a death sentence. Most of the time when you're talking about whether or not a death sentence should be in play, it's a gut-wrenching, horrendous thing for a jury to have to be deciding. And it takes hours and hours and hours. Well, with this one, uh, not all that difficult, to be honest. So, as I say, Dylan Roof convicted, well, he was already convicted, sentenced to death for the shooting deaths of all these people in South Carolina. So here's the problem. Here's the story. Maybe not a problem. Here's the story. There are a lot of people who are vigorously opposed to the death penalty. Vigorously. And I, I, I actually, under certain circumstances, am a proponent of the death penalty. Not in all circumstances. I don't believe that everybody who kills someone should be put to death. I think there are extenuating circumstances, but I think that it's something I believe in the concept of it in certain extreme circumstances. We can talk about those at another time because I don't want to get totally off track here. But in this case, I have no problem with Dylan Roof being sentenced to death. Nine people he killed. There's no question about it. He's not arguing the case. He's not fighting it. He's admitted that he's done it. He's not even putting up a defense. He just says, I did it. Well, for what? Well, we don't know why. Just did. So a lot of people, though, are still, even despite the fact that it was a cold-hearted, horrible, horrific act that he committed with no redeeming value, people are upset about the fact that he's getting the death penalty because they are anti-death penalty advocates. And again, okay, I understand that. That's fine. We can have that discussion. But would you prefer then the flip side? Because there's another story out today that may interest you if you are someone who is against the death penalty, if you're someone who believes more in the rehabilitation and the being more civil to serious, severe criminals, comes to us from Norway. Now, you're also going to remember this story. It wasn't that, well, 2011, and I'm going to, I'm going to mangle his name. I don't know how to say it properly, but Anders Bering Breivik. You know who I'm talking about? He went and went into, I remember he went into a camp. He was outside and he shot up and he killed 77 people with a bomb and with a bunch, and he shot a bunch of people. If you're still trying to remember who is this guy, every picture you see of him, he's giving the Nazi salute. 
I mean, he's, he's, he's all kinds of levels of evil. And so he also was convicted of mass murder, just like Dylan Roof was. Dylan Roof is convicted now or is being sentenced to death. In Norway, a country that is liberal thinking and forward thinking and compassionate and all these kind of things, and the, the society that, according to the United Nations, we should be moving toward. The United Nations has chosen Norway as the number one country in the world as far as living. Which means, if the United Nations says that that is the country that is number one, by extension, it's saying this is what we should be emulating. We should want to be like the Norwegians. And generally fine. Okay, I've, I've not been to Norway, but I'll, I'll, sure, whatever. I'll go hang out at a fjord. But here, get a load of what's happening in Norway, though, because of the way that their system is. Anders Bering Breivik, killer of 77 people in a huge ghastly mass murder is upset at his treatment in prison. What is his treatment in prison? Well, before I tell you what he's upset about, well, no, let me tell you what he's upset about. He had to spend some time in solitary confinement. He had to be strip searched occasionally and he was handcuffed once in a while. But what is his, so that obviously means that he is suffering because he's in a cold, damp, stone cell like uh, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, right? And he's eating just stale bread and water. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. He he is living in a three-cell complex all to himself. He's got three cells. He can play video games. He can watch TV. He's got room to exercise. He is fed proper food. But he, he is complaining because his isolation from the other inmates, even though they're doing it because they would kill him, he says, is cruel and unusual punishment. He's not happy with the prison food. He's not happy with the fact that he's been handcuffed at times while he's been moved around. He's not happy that he doesn't have full access to communicate with his sympathizers whenever he wants to. And Oslo's Supreme Court, or one of Oslo's levels of Supreme Courts, has backed his complaints. They are saying, yes, this, is guy, this guy is being hard done by. This is cruel and unusual punishment that a man who killed 77 people is being kept like an animal in a cage. Well, that's what we do with animals, right? But he's being kept like an animal, they said. So he's one. They've said that basically you've got to treat him better. He's not happy that he has to use, get this, he's not happy that he has to use plastic utensils for eating. This is a guy who killed 77 people. If he was worried about eating with plastic utensils, perhaps he should have thought of that before he went off on a shooting and bombing rampage. Um, it also, uh, the, the court ruled that the government has to pay his legal costs, $41,000 the equivalent in Canadian money. So here's our two systems. And I know, I understand that these are at extreme opposite ends of the spectrum, but which one of these drives you more crazy? The fact that we would execute in the States, we, the States, I'm talking North America, the fact that a mass murderer would be executed, a mass murderer, by the way, who is not fighting the facts, who is not arguing the facts, who has acknowledged the facts and has not put up any defense against what he did but there are people upset that he is going to be executed or the fact that we've got a mass murderer who's being held in a three cell complex with pretty much all the things you would need, food, water, 
television, video games, exercise room, a proper bed, everything else. But his standard of living is now below what he would expect as a prisoner. And so the courts are saying, no, you have to treat him better. Which one of these drives you more nuts? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I can tell you which one makes me crazy and you can probably tell. You, 77 people, you don't even need to kill 77 people before I'm of the opinion you shouldn't even be getting three cells. You shouldn't be getting video games. You probably shouldn't. Well, maybe you get TV. I don't know, just so you don't go, so you have something to do. But how in the world do you possibly complain after you have mowed down 77 people and the court system there backs you? How does that happen? If you're a, if you're one of the family members of one of these people who he slaughtered mercilessly and cold-heartedly, how do you possibly look at this and not think that you're court system has completely lost its mind. We're saying here that we're upset because someone is going to be executed for crimes that there is no question he committed. Horrible crimes that that killed a number of people. And we're saying, no, you can't do that. We've got to be way more compassionate. We've, we, can't, we can't have the death penalty. That's cruel. But then Somewhere else, you cruel. The definition of cruel is that you have to eat with plastic cutlery rather than silverware when you're in prison. I'll throw the number out again, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Which one, when you hear those stories, which one, what side of the spectrum are you on? Are we too compassionate with our prisoners? Or are we not compassionate enough with our prisoners? And I'm not talking just about people who have done things that you could certainly say they could be rehabilitated and, and get, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about break and enter or something like that. You're talking about two guys who are the worst of the worst, the evilest of the evil. Are we too nice to our prisoners or are we too hard on our prisoners? I'm of the opinion that when you have these kind of crimes, there's no such thing as being too hard on our prisoners. Let's be honest. If I have a family member who was gunned down as part of someone's random gun spree just because they wanted to do that that day, because they had a beef with something that you don't even understand that had nothing to do with you, and I find out that not only is the government having to be forced by courts to treat this person kindly and compassionately and like they're in a hotel, but also to pay his legal fees and give money, my tax dollars, to them. Are you kidding me? But you want to know something? There are people in this country, there are people in the States who think that that's the, what should actually happen, that we should have a far kinder, gentler, more compassionate penal system for the prisoners who are in there, even the ones who have committed the most horrendous of atrocities. I don't want in this country, I don't want, if you, if you're old enough, if you have enough memory to remember Guy Paul Moran, that was a, that was a, a, a miscarriage of justice. It was an innocent person who ended up spending time in prison and getting wrongly convicted. I believe twice he was wrongly convicted or anyway, once in an appeal and So I'm not of the opinion that someone who has been convicted of a murder should be killed. I'm not. There's too, there's just too much of a chance that something could 
be discovered later or something could go wrong. But when you start getting into someone who, with video cameras rolling and all kinds of witnesses, is out mowing people down randomly, wantonly, just shooting all kinds of people, why are we worried about whether or not they're comfortable? Why are we worried about whether or not they stay alive? Let, why do we have a problem with the death penalty for these people at all? If you have a problem with the death penalty, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. We've got just a couple minutes left in this segment. But I just, I simply can't understand either side of the argument here. But particularly the one that says we need to be kinder and more compassionate to criminals, as Norway seems to be saying now. Don't treat criminals like criminals. Treat them like people who simply are being kept in a Norwegian motel for all intents and purposes. Treat the, They can't be out on the street. They're too dangerous to be out on the street. But really, you can't be nasty to them. You can't treat them like they are the scum of the earth. You can't treat them harshly. They're simply clients in a federally run facility hotel slash resort. Luke, you're, you're wanting to jump in on this. Uh, yeah, so firstly on the Norway killer... Uh, I think that there needs to be some clarification. His prison cell is not normal by Norwegian standards. It's apparently to compensate for the fact that he doesn't have contact with other prisoners, right. which is which is abnormal in Norway because they believe, I guess, that human interaction is a basic right. And so that's But why they're putting he, him in here not to be punitive. They're putting him in here so he doesn't get killed by the other prisoners. So, But so that's why his prison cell is nicer. Also, the thing you left out that he was complaining about was frequent awakenings at night, which is, in some cases, used as a torture device. So maybe it was, maybe he's blowing it out of proportion, but it also could have been legitimate inhumane treatment by the guards of a horrible person, but still something that could be considered inhumane. Also, he's just using what's at his disposal and the law has to go with it. If the laws say that this stuff is inhumane, then what are the judges supposed to do? Yes, he's a horrible person, but they're not saying he specifically deserves this better treatment. They're this saying exactly, the law says that And that's exactly what I'm that. saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. How can you possibly have a law, a legal system, a, a rule of law that says that our worst criminals need to be treated in a way that is compassionate and kind? But it's, but it's not about the worst criminals. It's about every criminal. And this particular instance was so far outside of anything that anybody had ever seen in Norway that the laws weren't, you don't write laws with the expectation that somebody's going to mass murder. And I, and I know that it's become somewhat commonplace here in North America to hear about these mass killings, but over in Europe and especially in the, in the Scandinavian countries, that is incredibly rare. To the point that I, that's probably the only one that's happened in the last couple decades. And it's and that's why the laws may seem like they're inefficient. Because I know people complained when he was sentenced to 21 years in prison, which was his sentence. And they said, well, that's not long enough. And you're right. That's not long enough. But the laws weren't ready for it. And also, it's not 21 years. It's 21 years. And then at the end of it, if they still determine he's a threat, they can hold him as long as they want. Right. And that's why I never even mentioned the number of time. Because it's really a life sentence. Because there's no chance they're ever going to let him out of that place. Right. You cannot. You you must expect though that when you have these discussions, and and again, we're talking about whether or not we need to be kinder and more civilized to our worst criminals, or whether we need to be able to say, you know what, when these when we have these cases, we don't really need to treat them in a kind, compassionate, comfortable 
way. And, 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 and so the judiciary, when they're looking at this thing and they say, okay, you woke him up and he may have other information. You, you, there are all kinds of things going on here. You, you have to believe that the justice system has the capability, the capability to be at least pli- not pliable, m- flexible enough to, per- to see particular circumstances and say, it's not cruel and unusual punishment that he is in a cell when we're putting him in a cell for his own protection. That's not, it's no longer cruel. We're not doing it to be punitive. We're doing it to be protective. And if we let him go into the general population, he is killed and then we're responsible. So we can't do that. It's the exact same reason Paul Bernardo is off by himself right now and wherever he is these days, because they closed Kingston Pen. He is kept by himself because if he got into the general population, he would last about four minutes, if that. So you can't, you can't argue that I, that it should be kinder behavior that putting them away by themselves is somehow inhumane when it's for their protection. Right. But it's, it's the rights of prisoners in, in that country that they have the right to these things. It's not necessarily just for his protection. They've also, the, the thing they turned down that he argued for was there's major restrictions on his correspondence, uh, that he can keep with, with anybody. And they turned down, uh, a claim by him that they were being inhumane and it was against his human rights that he wasn't allowed to contact people because they're afraid of him starting a network and this happening again by a follower of his. And I think that they are far more concerned about that happening if he was in the general population than about him being killed because uh, it seems like they think he can handle himself fairly well. Well, when he's got a machine gun and a bomb in his hand, he's very capable of, ha- of handling himself. But it, it, they, they seem more worried about the charismatic side of his personality that has, al- that has brought people, that has drawn people to him because there are supporters of him out there. As ridiculous as that sounds, he has people who think he is this hero. And so they're more worried about those people if he was in gen- general populations, because it's not just that he could talk to people in prison, it's that he could talk to people and then those people could talk, could be allowed to talk to people on the outside and he could build this network. I think that's what they're more worried about with him in solitary than about him being killed by the other prisoners. Let me know what you think. Do you agree with Luke? Do you agree with me? Do you agree with neither of us? Radley at 900chml.com. Send an email if you, uh, if you want to write down your thoughts. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There have been a lot of unusual television shows produced over the years. Uh, Many of them, well, a number of them on broadcast television, but many of them, if not regularly on, certainly get their start on cable channels. If you watched Wayne's World, remember the movie Wayne's World? That was kind of the idea behind it, the cable access channel, the local channel where basically, you know, for a lot of people, it's a great opportunity to go somewhere and try something completely new because it's where you can do these things that broadcast television would never let you get away with it. Costs a lot less money to do it on one of those cable channels when you have volunteers and other people involved than it is to try and pitch a show on some national network and it costs millions and millions of dollars. And especially some of the the more unusual ones where the people behind them, the organizers of the stations and stuff are saying, "Ah, I'm not sure. Well, this is where you get away with it. It's all a big lead in because there are few among all the wacky ones. There are very few, especially today that will match Cadillac Bill's show for its unusualness. I don't even think that's a word, but we're going to make it up today. For its unusualness, uh, 
The show is a talk show of sorts with Cadillac Bill, your host, sitting in front of a sawed-off Cadillac hood with his band behind him, and it goes from there. And when I say it goes from there, the stuff that he's been doing over the last while, and it's it's hilarious, got our attention this week because on top of everything else, his new art project with the show is a seven-part reshooting of the first season of Downton Abbey (laughs) using stuffed taxidermied rats dressed in period costumes and one live juror or guinea pig to make this happen. Uh, Cadillac Bill joins me now. Bill, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott. I I had no idea that my Downton Alley and my show was so funny until I listened to your description. Well, I, I, I was trying, actually, I was sort of stumbling my way along to try and think of some accurate, honest, fair way to describe what your show is. And I got to tell you, I'm, I, I fumbled around for a bit and I'm kind of stumped. How do you describe your show when you're talking to people? Um, I want it to be like nothing ever before seen on TV. <laughs> you have succeeded, my friend. You have done that for sure. I'm uh, so glad you find it funny. I, 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 I didn't plan it to be funny. I wanted it to be very serious, but really ridiculous and uh all about weird things things that you'd never really that that would never be seen really on television so when people would make the comment that it's more than a little strange that's a compliment then oh yeah oh yeah that's that's good and i'm thrilled that you find it funny well it it is because it's just and again i don't i'm not referring to you but the concept and some of the stuff you do borders on complete insanity. Well, good, yes. I, uh, one of the other cable shows that started on cable was Tom Green. So, yeah, absolutely, uh, I, yeah, absolutely. I was a big fan of his, and, uh, and my, I could never be as good as Tom Green, but uh, I would uh, maybe try. But, uh, well, wh- t- Bill, when you walk in, to Cable 14 once upon a time. I don't even know how long ago you started doing this, but when you walk into Cable 14 and you sit down, probably with Brent Rickard, who was the guy who runs over there, and you say, listen, I got this idea for a show. I've got this concept. How in the world do you pitch what you do? How do you explain the idea of what it is you're going to do on his airwaves? Well, the great thing about Cable uh, shows is pretty much anyone can make a show as long as it fits all of the regulations. And if I make the show, then it's fine. Um, so I basically went in there, and it was actually Gail Granlin. Okay. Um, and, I, and I told her I went to film school. I was at UCLA, and I've made lots of uh, movies over my days, and I'm a Hamilton musician, and, and uh, here's a one-page description of what my idea is, and it's and basically, she said, well, as long as it's about Hamilton or it's to, to do with Hamilton, and it, then that's fine. That, that's the requirement. It's got to look good. It's got to be you know, good visual quality, good audio, and it's got to be to do with Hamilton. And the first time you did one, and they then saw it, did they say, what in the world <laughs> have we got well, ourselves into? Uh, no, actually, they... Was, they didn't say much. They just sort of said, uh, oh, yeah, okay, um, you may want to not film into the light too much because then people have, are, are in a silhouette. 
They basically, uh, and then they also said, you, you know, your camera shots were a little jerky. Try to keep this camera a bit steadier. So it was like they had no artistic uh, opinion of it. They were just basically helping me along to make sure it looked good. See, and that's the part of it that I love, that it was just so um, so out there. So the, Now, I, I must say that as I've watched a few episodes, it appears that there is some kind of beverage on your desk more often than not. Uh, yeah. Would that be something that might be helping along with some of the ideas here? <laughs> we're actually fairly sober, but uh, we do enjoy a drink once in a while. And and uh, the bar on the set, my idea was to have a bar because I wanted it to be more inviting to the audience. So the audience feels like we're just a bunch of guys in our basement hanging out doing a cable show. And we so do it. That's why the bar is there. And Bill, you know, I mentioned off the top that there is a history of uh, goofy, crazy, unusual TV shows, and and in this city as well. I mean, maybe one of the, and we've talked about it on this show before. Maybe one of the all-time bizarre TV shows ever produced anywhere was Hilarious House of Frightenstein, done right here in Hamilton. And and I mean, certainly you're not doing the same kind of things, but it's got the same kind of feel in a way to it that it's it's just something you don't see anywhere else. Exactly. That was an amazing show, and uh, we should be truly blessed for having such a wonderful show out of our city with the uh, House of Frank- Frankenstein. Uh, that, however, wasn't on cable. It was an actual right. show made money, and, and it was actually a real TV station. So when you're sitting around to come up with a topic, and I want to get to your refilming of Downton Abbey in just a second, but when you're doing your show, have you ever come up with something and said, you know what, because anyone who watches this is going to see there are some very funny, very bizarre, very quirky things. Have you ever come up with one and said, no, that's just too ridiculous. We can't do that. Oh, never. <laughs> no. no. Plenty of, uh, there's been plenty of people who've asked to be on the show or people have given me ideas. Uh, and 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 quite often it just seems too boring or too uninteresting. You know, like if it's a politician or if it's uh, if it's some band or if it's if it's your usual typical stuff, it's just not interesting. But if it's a band or if it's a politician who's doing something completely nuts and I can uh, have some fun with it, then for sure. But my show really isn't about promoting bands and their new CDs or promoting some nice restaurant. It's nothing like that. It's really all about doing something that's odd, bizarre, entertaining. And uh, if it's a restaurant that, you know, is completely nuts, I'll do a thing on them, but, you know, not just because they're a great restaurant. You talk about politicians. For people to kind of get a sense, again, if they haven't seen it, if you were going to have a politician on your show, the guy I could have ever imagined being on there would have been a guy like Michael Baldessero. That would have fit in exactly with what you're doing. Oh, yeah, Michael Baldessero or Rob Ford, someone like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right, so when I said, is it possible that there was anything that was too ridiculous, um, I knew the answer already, at least I suspected, because as I said off the top, you have just done a seven-part reshoot of Downton Abbey using dead, stuffed, taxidermied rats dressed in period costumes. Yep. Um, I, I can't even fathom where this idea came from. Well, the, the <laughs> idea, I, 
uh, two years ago, I, I interviewed uh, Hamilton Taxidermist and Kicks a Risk. Well, she's been on our show before. She is uh, one of the, a true artist and a, a, a great, great artist, I would say. And I was interviewing her, uh, and I was surrounded by all of these rats all dressed <laughs> up, and all I kept thinking while I was interviewing her was, i got to have them in a movie somehow. <laughs> uh, they Just looking at them made me laugh. Um, so for, for quite a while, I figured out, well, what classic film should I re reconstruct with these rats? Because she'd already had them all dressed up in Victorian clothes. So it had to be a period film. And then everyone was just going on about Downton Abbey, which I'd never watched. <laughs> I figured, okay. So how do you remake it if you've never watched it? Well, this is, uh, I never, even when I made my Downton Alleys, I never once watched Downton Abbey. <laughs> what I did, I just grabbed the script off the internet, the entire script of season one, um, which was thousand pages or something. I mean, there's all the scripts from seven episodes, because each episode's an hour long. So I just edited it down and down and down and changed all the, the, the things to be about rats <laughs> and um, basically reconstructed Downton Abbey to be about a family of rats living in a large cardboard box made from a toilet roll boxes. <laughs> and they live in a grand uh, toilet roll box. And uh, it's the exact same stories, but to be about rats. Did, did you then do all of the, I'll, I'll call it animation, or the? did you do everything? Did you put it all together, film it, and do the voices and everything else? Well, yeah. I, it was literally, I, I just had a little handheld camera. Fortunately, technology now is so terrific that you can have a tiny little camera, and it's good enough for television. So I just held the camera, wiggled the rats around in front of the camera, <laughs> um, and, I, and I had my script and with me, so I knew exactly what all of the scenes were going to be and what the actors were going to be doing, the dialogue. And I built the set, the sets, and um, and Kicks have pretty much made all the rats. So. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so she didn't leave that for you part. to do. Uh, I did the easy part, which was just film them and, and make the sets. And uh, we just, that's how I did it. And then later we got... Um, all my friends to do the voices and uh because i had uh the creeping bent orchestra which is the band on my show uh, they were musicians I, f I figured i'll get other musicians to uh be a part of it so uh i got uh laurie yates to do be the kitchen maids daisy and mrs ratmore uh, I I hope there's some Downton fans listening. Exactly. Because this might go over some people's heads. So Laurie Yates was Mrs. Ratmore, who's actually Mrs. Patmore on Downton Abbey. And then I got uh, a Ginger St. James to be Lady Harry, who's actually <laughs> Lady Mary. And uh, Miss Chaos Divine Hamilton Burlesque Dancer is Lady Eat It, who's actually Lady Edith. <laughs> And then Sammy Squid was uh, Mrs. Huge, who who is actually the cook, Mrs. Hughes. And um, it's it's the the best part about this. It is 
low and when people watch it and I'm going to post one of the videos on the Scott Radley show Facebook page when we're done when people watch this this is low budget the way low budget is supposed to be it is the absolute lowest of the low budget and it's hilarious <laughs> well well it's actually I think it's better than Downton Abbey. This is with stuffed rats. Well, and how could it not be, really? When you bring stuffed rats into the equation, it can't help but be. I think every film should be done. I think the news should be read by stuffed rats. I was Uh, thinking about this, Bill, before you came on. I thought, what other project then could you launch into a multi-part thing? And I'm thinking, you know, the miniseries that was just on about the story of O.J. Simpson would be perfect with stuffed rats. (laughs) Well, well, that's... (laughs) Uh, that's a brilliant idea. I was actually thinking when I was watching the uh, the American debates, I was thinking that hey, too. We should, we should use the rats to, to, <laughs> to use the same audio as the debates and just replace them with rats. It is. Uh, there, there's really nothing you couldn't do better with yeah. dead, stuffed, taxidermy, dressed rats than you could with live people. And 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 the cost of salaries is way less. It's it's much less. But the. But we only have a minute or so left. I just want to say, besides this, uh, some of the other stuff, and there was one other thing in particular that I found that I've seen on your show that I, I absolutely, I, I almost fell out of my chair laughing because, again, I just want people to understand what you're doing. You did a drone tour of Tim Horton's field shortly after it was built, which was fine because there were a number of people who did drone tours, except your drone ended up stuck in a tree. <laughs> yeah, yes, I know. It, it was completely unplanned. And how did you get it down? Oh, oh, oh we had to drive back to a friend's place to get a, a, a huge pole, one of those enormous poles for clipping branches. I think it was like a 30-foot pole. Oh, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I'm, by the way, I'm picking up, uh, are you from Canada originally? Are you from Hamilton originally? Well, no, I was born in England. I was picking up a little accent. That's why I was asking. So I've actually been here like, well, I, I was 10 when I came okay. out. So, and I'm incredibly old now. So I've been very, I've been here a long time, but I was in Toronto for for, for most of the time, and then I moved to Hamilton about twenty years ago. The uh, the entire seven part Downton Abbey stuffed taxidermied rat series, uh, you're going to be showing it. Is it this Friday night at the Casbah? This Friday night, yes. And you'll be there, I assume. Oh, oh yeah, I'll be there, and Kixer will be there. All of the people who did the voices are going to be there. And the rats, the actual rats. The actors will be there. They will be there. People can see the rats. (laughs) And I would say it's going to be the most unusual event ever at a bar. (laughs) Uh, It's screenings of the Downton Alleys. And and the bands who performed in it are going to be playing. It's it's fantastic. And if they... James Laurie Yates and Tim Gibbons. Tim Gibbons, by the way, did some of the voices too. If you can't make it there... I think all seven episodes are on online. You can find it there. Uh, and you're also, you're on tonight at 11 o'clock on Cable 14, right? Correct. Every Tuesday at 11 on Cable 14. It, Bill, listen, uh, it is, uh, I, I love the show. It's just so ridiculous that I absolutely love it. And I would encourage people to tune in. I, I'm going to, as I say, I'm going to right now during the break, uh, link to one of the Downton Alley uh, segments on the Scott Radley Show Facebook page if people want to go see it. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this tonight. Thanks. Uh, Thanks a lot, Scott. Good talking to you. That is Cadillac Bill. Check him out at 11 o'clock tonight, and in about three minutes, go to my Facebook page, and you will find a hint of it there. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We've heard in the last 24, 48 hours, something like that, that the world of soccer 
apparently is going to change significantly every quadrennial because the group FIFA that oversees soccer around the world, international soccer, has decided that it is, well, it's pushing towards expanding the field for the World Cup from 36 to 48 teams. It wants to bump up more, bring more teams in so that it can have more games. Bring more countries in. Have more people involved. It's a big party. Let's have an even bigger party. Well, John McGrain is our go-to soccer expert, a member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame, Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, a guy who has uh, done wonderful things for soccer in this community. He played. He was a professional, played in the 1976 Olympics in Montreal for Canada. Uh, He joins us now. John, thanks for doing this. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. Always glad to have you along. And almost every time we have you here, John, we get talking about something to do with international soccer. And almost without exception, you are... I'll call you a critic of FIFA. You're you're not a guy who is uh, just walking around patting them on the back for everything they do. Would it be a fair assumption that you look at the decision that they're making to expand the field here and you are saying, and I'm guessing, I haven't asked you this, that you're guessing this is a money thing? Well, to be fair, uh, I have been a critic of the old FIFA. I think uh, through the the scandals that has happened. Uh, I think the new group that they've got in there right now, Infantino, I think, is doing a really good job. Uh, I think it's more transparent. So, in, in fairness, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, yeah, they're going to make probably an extra billion dollars on this. But but more importantly, it's, it's including parts of the world that ordinarily wouldn't get a chance to compete in the World Cup. And I think for the sport in general, I think it's very, very good. Okay, let's go to the money thing first, and then we'll go to the other part, because it's sort of, and it's not just you. A lot of people have said, well, it'll bring in a billion dollars, but, and I know they bring in something like five billion for the World Cup anyway, but a billion dollars is a lot of money. There, there's no doubt that if you hold this, a billion dollars is a billion dollars. Well, it also gives them an opportunity to redistribute. I mean, it's it, it's not a, it's strictly for-profit business. I mean, it's basically owned by all the countries in the world. So when that kind of money comes into the FIFA headquarters, what they tend to do is utilize whatever funds that they have available and send it out to places that ordinarily don't get the, uh, you know, don't have the money or don't get the profile. And these are the the countries that they hope will be part of this 48 group. So, uh, no, I I, I don't think it's strictly about just that money in their pockets. I think it's about growing the the game. So you, so we we expand it now to forty eight teams, and of course that does open the door because very often, I mean, how many would you say typically out of the teams that have been in the World Cup before, out of the the uh, thirty six teams, uh, fair to say that probably twenty eight to twenty nine are generally this pretty close to the same group time after time. I mean, Italy's always there, England's always there. There's a, there's a core group that is pretty good in international soccer that's there more often than not. Yeah, that that would be true. Now, I can give you a, a subtle example. Uh, I've been following Scotland, uh, you know, my the home of of where I was born, uh, who traditionally never get to the World Cup because they're always like one game short or, or so forth. There's a lot of teams in Europe that are very much like that. And there are certain teams in South America that are very much like that. I think bringing those teams into the fold, and those would be the the next group after the 32 who would benefit most, uh, that would that would probably help as far as 
uh, fan support and, and excitement in those particular countries. Uh, I know how Scotland would react if they were in a World Cup. I mean, half the country, would, which is two and a half million, would probably come to all the games, <laughs> if possible. But uh, the next group after that, which would be, let's say, the next eight after that, uh, would probably be countries like Canada. Uh, countries, uh, you know, like New Zealand, uh, uh, countries in Africa who d- certainly deserve to be in the World Cup, but because of the allocation of uh, uh, countries that are allowed to come from those regions, they're not allowed. There's just too much competition. So uh, I think uh, it, I think it would be great for the game if you allowed a 48 team uh, World Cup. Uh, the fact that they're breaking it down into just two games. Uh, for you know, and you know, you've got three teams in uh, in sixteen groups or something to that effect. Uh, I think it won't have anything really much to do as far as the excitement of the World Cup because the World Cup really doesn't get exciting until the, the quarterfinals. You, uh, I can I can grab what you're saying. I can get what you're saying when you talk about a team like a country like Scotland that has a rich soccer history. That's a pretty good team, but again, is just stuck behind some real powerhouses. And so if this was done properly, I could get on board with this thing and say, yeah, we are opening the door to a bunch of teams that are just that close but can never get over the hump. But John, my my fear about this is that FIFA, again, we go back to the billion dollars, says, okay, where are the richer countries that we can try and exploit the fans more? And it's not now about bringing in the better teams that will still lead to a very high level of soccer. It's what are the teams that we would really like to have in here, whether they're good or not, and how do we get them on board? So if if it was going to be targeted to make it possible for those really close teams, I'm okay. I'm just not sure they're going to do it that way. Well, let, let me just say this to you. Uh, I understand completely where they're going for, but the two, possibly three big markets that they're looking at right now. Number one is China, who has invested billions of dollars into the new Chinese professional league. Then you've got India, which has a population of a billion people who have just started their own uh, professional league a couple of years ago. And it's very, uh, you know, it's becoming very, very popular. Uh, And the third one being Canada. I mean, uh, as far as GDP is concerned, I mean, we're probably one of the wealthiest nations in the world and have a lot of money to spend if our team ever gets the World Cup as far as TV rights, merchandising, and so forth. Uh, But what's going to be interesting uh, to most people that may or may not know this, but along with the 48-team expansion, uh, don't be surprised if you see a co-hosting of the 2026 uh, World Cup. Which Which is when this is supposed to come into effect for. Correct. Which will be Mexico, the United States, and Canada. And Mexico traditionally qualifies on their own. The United States traditionally qualify on their own. So this would, though, be an open door for Canada to be as host, to have a team in there. So that's fine. I mean, if we're hosting, you get to have a team in the tournament anyway. But going forward from that, even if it expands to 48 teams, the way Canada's international soccer is going, the way our national program is going, within a decade, can you foresee us being a legitimate qualifier for one of those 48 spots? Well, absolutely, because I can tell you why. Uh, Once the United States hosted the, I think it was the 94 World Cup, uh, that was the the money that it received from that started the MLS. Uh, 
I believe that what's happening right now, and again, we're not that far away from, from making announcements, but I think that the key factor here is is that this is all part of a grand scheme to to help Canada uh, have its first truly coach-to-coach professional soccer league. Uh, that would give Canada probably eight to nine years of development of players so that they would be a legitimate uh, competitor in, uh, and, and a competitive host, much like South Korea and Japan did, uh, who co-hosted uh, a World Cup uh, not that long ago. And they have got to the point where they are now competitive. So I think we're starting in the right, the right, uh, the right way. The fact that uh, that along with these announcements, very much in the background of this is a new Canadian Premier League. Yeah, because we would, uh, let's be honest, I mean, we would want, if we get to the World Cup, the last time we were there, it was fantastic that we were there, what was it, 84, 82, something like that? 86. 86, okay. Uh, we didn't score a goal, lost all three games. I, I would think that most Canadians now, if we get there, the hope and the expectation would be that we would do something besides just show up. And so you would want to say that by that time that we could be at least competitive. Well, let's put it this way. You're not going to host, and I've said this before, and I think I might have said it to you, we will not be hosting a World Cup unless we have a uh, a truly professional soccer league in Canada within the next 18 months. Because FIFA, I don't think FIFA will allow us to co-host a World Cup without a fully functioning professional league that produces good players uh, and uh, and that when they leave, uh, the legacy that's left behind is an even better league. Yeah, my have right now. yeah, my pause just a second ago because I was actually trying to think: has, has there ever been, or in recent years, has there been a case of a host team of a World Cup being really weak? Well, I, I'm trying to think. Germany hosted; they were great. How did South Africa do when they hosted? They weren't very good, were they? No, they weren't very good. And I think when South, I think South Korea did quite well. They did okay. Sure, they did well. Yeah, and Japan and did okay. Japan did okay. Uh, but when, once you get past the real stalwarts of the world, like the top twenty in the world, who are, who have the potential of hosting the World Cup, you're always going to have that. I mean, would uh, the way England is playing right now? Would you say that they are? You know, quarterfinal uh, potentials for a World Cup, maybe, maybe not, based on their last performance. Uh, you know, you could go around South America and Europe and say some of the powerhouses, how would they do in a World Cup? Yeah, probably. But there are other nations uh, that uh, that would really struggle to host a World Cup and be competitive. I really do believe that. So I, I think it's really, really important to grow the game as opposed to. Uh, looking, looking at uh, uh, making a whole month, a whole bunch of money, and uh, and walking away with a big smile on your face. That, that said, and and, and I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and I think there's validity for sure to what you're saying. That if you, I, the reason I asked about hosting teams, almost every country that has to host a major, major event, and go back to Canada for the 2010 Winter Olympics, you do not want to be embarrassed, and so you put money into it, and it kickstarts whatever program it is that you're doing. And I think the the Canadian Olympic team with the own the podium is a perfect example of that. Um, and so you want to have that, you want to be good. So that that that's that's fair. But with the money, going back for just a second, if Sepp Blatter was still the head of FIFA, would we be would we be talking about this positively, or would we be so cynical about FIFA that 
even you and I would be saying, no, no, this is just a money grab. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so that's changed that much that because the the ownership and the governance of FIFA has changed enough that our entire focus on this, our entire position, can be changed. Well, FIFA will always be somewhat of an old boys club, but I think what's happened is is that someone's turned a flashlight on and the and the cockroaches have all run to the corners, hmm. and the people who don't mind the lights are the ones standing in the middle. So I think FIFA has basically, for the most part, helped to clean up a lot of things that have gone on. And I think the good of the game, the integrity of the game, is now front and foremost, uh, as far as FIFA is concerned. And that's what the big change was. Uh, we would not have 48 teams if, uh, if Bladder was involved. Uh, would they be looking to try and increase other ways to get revenue? Yeah, that revenue would go in somebody's pocket and it wouldn't be for the good of the game. I think that has changed. Uh, and I think these moves are designed to show the rest of the world that we're willing to adapt and change to uh, to moving forward. John, last thing. Do you think the rest of the world takes right now, and not going forward, but do you think right now the rest of the world takes Canadian soccer seriously? Oh, God, no. Uh, I mean, we're, uh, we're Pluto. You know, we're as far <laughs> out of the galaxy as you can probably get. But that being said, uh, it wasn't that long ago we we were probably ranked in the top 30 in the world. You know, when I, when I had the chance to, to play, we had some outstanding players. And we played against the best in the world and were competitive and, and at times beat them. So can we do it again? We're producing great basketball players, great hockey players. Yes. Uh, yep. Great baseball players. We still have great athletes. We just need to turn them on to soccer. And if we're able to give them a league where they can earn a living from it, because a lot of kids growing up, their passion is soccer. Those who are not six foot eight, uh, their passion is the game. So I think there are great athletes out there that once they see in eight years or ten years of World Cups coming to our backyard, there's a new professional coming along, I think you'd be really surprised at the kind of athletes who are going to be available to soccer. And I've always said this, give me a great athlete, I'll make them a great player. Well, it always seems to be the case when people wonder why it is that Canada hasn't produced soccer players. Um, most of the other countries around the world where soccer is the passion, all your best athletes go into that sport. Absolutely. Whereas here, yeah. they go into hockey, they go into football. They, there's a lot of options for people who are athletic. And whether it's soccer, I mean, I, it would be with hockey. We have so many choices now. If you went back to the old days of Canada and said everybody who's a great athlete chooses hockey, our hockey program would be so outstanding we'd have it would be ridiculous. Same with, I mean, pick any sport and do that. You're going to be pretty good. Well, let's put it this way, Scott. You know, we've produced an NBA most viable player, an MLB most viable player, an NHL most viable player. That's all over. That's in, that's in the world. Okay? These are the best players in the world at their sport. And they're Canadians. And we have a population of just over 30 million. So that tells me that if we had access to some of these great athletes who have chosen to go to other sports and decide to come to, to soccer, why can't we do the same thing? It's a great point. It's a great point. And maybe, maybe this, maybe this is the the thing. I I remain somewhat cynical and skeptical, and I think that's probably just the residue of the previous FIFA ownership. Um, that I hear the name FIFA and I immediately see dollar signs, and I think they do too. But you know what, John? You've convinced me. You've at least part way. You've convinced me that this might actually be a really good thing for us. So I've also got some real estate in Florida. <laughs> 
<laughs> John McGrain, always appreciate your time talking soccer. Thank you. Nice talking to you, Scott. Take care. Again, I you know what? I, I Perhaps I've been tarnished and tainted by the Sepp Blotter stain. But I always, when I hear about a new thing in soccer, in world soccer, that is going to open doors and create more opportunities, I got to be honest, my initial cynical, skeptical reaction is, oh, how's FIFA going to squeeze more bucks out of us for this one? And it's, it is, it's going to be a billion dollars if they actually go through with this. But I will, I will, I will take John's position that if we get into this and if we build a, if this piece by piece, if we're going to get into the World Cup, either by hosting or because we want to qualify, and that means starting a Canadian soccer league that if, if, if it could be successful enough to lure some people here to let them play professionally, start putting all those pieces in place, maybe, I'm putting a lot of caveats in here because I actually believe that there's a lot of caveats, but maybe then we start drawing some of our better athletes into soccer who, who probably already play soccer when they're kids and then leave to go do other things. Maybe, maybe it works. You know what? Luke wants I to am, jump in on I this. Luke not, is dying to jump in. I, I am. I'm not nearly as cynical as you when it comes to this expansion of the World Cup, but what I am significantically more cynical apparently on is uh, our own professional league. Because well, that's, I what, think, that's my caveat. I don't think we need it. I, I know there's a, I know a lot of people, including John, including uh, some friends of mine, are pushing hard for this league. I believe that it will be... Uh, we have already the infrastructure in place. I was looking at... Because people talk well, about the, how... the thing you have to do, and what, what... Sorry to interrupt. The thing you have to do is, if it's going to work, and I don't know if it can work, but you have to find a way to keep people in soccer. Right, sure. so they play soccer. They're really good at soccer, but they can't make money at soccer. When they get to that point, they probably can't get a scholarship. You can get a scholarship in something else. There's not the money. So if if you can find a way to keep good athletes in the game, then maybe you can find at least eleven good enough players to build a decent national team. But the thing is, there are ways for these kids, these players, to make money in the game in this country already. And that's that's why I think it's not necessary. Like, when you look at our population of 38 million, yes, that compares to countries that have professional leagues, but those places don't have other sports. So honestly, the best comparable for Canada is the state of California, because we have approximately the same amount of people as they do, and also the allure of all the other sports. And you know how many soccer teams they have between the three North American leagues? Six, which is the same number that Canada has. Okay, but you're, I'll take your comparable, but I'm going to spin it because I don't think it's actually comparable, and that is because California has better weather. So I don't think you can compare soccer to soccer. How, is, how many hockey players, how many NHL players is California producing every year? Well, more than they used to, but more than they used still to, but significantly still small. not very many compared to Canada. So there's your, it's, it's what sport you're getting people into. And I don't think that with our... No, but my point was more that that state, which has the same population that we do and the same other sports they can go into, even with much, the much better, better climate and the, and the better climate still only has six teams between the three leagues, which is the MLS, the USL and the NASL. And so that's, that's still not even all the same division. And let's be honest, only one of those leagues truly, truly matters to most people. Right. And they have two teams if in that they, league. If it matters at they all. They have the San Jose Earthquake and they have, I, I think that's a team, and, and the LA Galaxy. And Canada has three teams in that league. 
I understand what people are talking about when they say that we don't have, we need our own league because they look everywhere else has a league. I don't believe we can support a league and I don't believe it will help because I don't think that it will ever reach a level that will attract the players because TFC is still going to exist if this Canadian Premier League starts and Vancouver and Montreal and they will still take the best Canadian players and now Canadian starting next season Canadian players count as national players for all the American teams too so they can start taking Canadian players without using up some of their international slots and if it's really yeah and if there are opportunities for Canadians we are doing a poor job of getting them to that point and I don't necessarily believe that a Canadian Premier League is is that step because people want it to be the final step and if you're really really good you're going to go over and play in the premier league anyway Ex- so exactly and then represent england when you become well, hope, to play hope, for the national yeah, team. hopefully not hopefully you still want to play for canada but i know what you're saying we had uh, owen hargraves who did that the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine on am 900 am 900 chml